we love you and we're so grateful for your word. Thank you for your wisdom in giving that to us. I pray that you would really unfold the scripture to us. Speak to your people. Lord, they need to hear from you today. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And by your powerful spirit, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever been homesick? Anybody been homesick before? Whoo, man. A few years ago, while we were in the process of adopting our son Peyton, I was homesick. There was this period of time where uh, Peyton and I were over in Uganda, separated from the rest of the family for about a month. So like a full five weeks times, we were away from Trish and the rest of the kids. And, and what is more, the internet was spotty. And so like communication was difficult. And there was a nine hour time difference. So there would be like days on end where I wouldn't be able to talk to my wife. When I got back home, I was like, who are these children? They feel like they've grown up right before my eyes. I mean, it was, it was hard. And I remember some nights just being like, man, when can I go home? What, is, what even complicated the situation even more, it was just about this time of year, which means the holidays were right around the corner. And up until like, like two days before Thanksgiving, it looked like we weren't going home. We were just going to have to stay home, me and Peyton hanging out in the guest house while the whole rest of the family is back at home. I remember there was a sense of longing in my heart. I wanted to go home. If you've ever been homesick, you kind of know what that feels like, right? You, you want to go home. In our passage today, the psalmist expresses a very similar desire. Look at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy at the living God. The psalmist's desire to be in God's presence is so intense. Did you catch that there? That it says he even faints. Now, in order to kind of understand this, we, we have to get a little bit of background of it. In the Old Testament era, if you were a Jew, you would make the trek from wherever you live down to Jerusalem three times a year to gather with the people of God at the temple for one sort of big celebratory feast and worship experience. And this is what's going on here. These people are expressing their desire to gather. This psalm was probably written as kind of like a journeying song or a pilgrimage song as if you sang it or you recited it on your way up to Jerusalem. So that raised the question in my mind though, why did the psalmist feel such a sense of longing? I mean, honestly, like he's saying my soul longs, even faints, to be in the presence of God. Did anybody like faint on the way to church today because they were so much wanting to be here that they were about to pass out? I doubt it. I doubt it. If you did, please come talk to me afterwards because I want to be as spiritual as you. Right? But this psalmist, he's like, I long for God and I long for his presence so much that it feels as if I'm going to faint. So why? Well, I think the answer is this. is because the psalmist wanted to be at the temple because he knew that's where God dwelt. 
And he believed that if he was in the presence of God, he would have joy. It's similar to when I was in Uganda, right? Like, I didn't want to come home so much because I wanted a cheeseburger, although cheeseburgers are good, and I kind of wanted a cheeseburger. I didn't want to be home so much because I wanted to sleep in my own bed, which, which I did. I didn't even want to be home so much because I just loved the good old U.S. of A. I really wanted to be home because I wanted to be in the presence of my loved ones, and I knew that in the presence of my loved ones, there was what? Joy. Joy. I wanted to be with them because I wanted joy. L listen to this. Longing is essentially or ultimately an expression of faith. When you feel longing in your heart, it's an expression of faith that you think the thing that you long for is going to bring you joy, right? Think about it with me for a minute. How many of you are longing for lunch right now, right? Right? Longing for lunch because you believe that when you have that fried chicken, okay, yeah, amen, we got some fried chicken fans here, that when you put that in your mouth, it is going to bring you joy, right? Some of you are really longing for Thursday because Thursday is what? Thanksgiving and boy, oh boy, you want that turkey and you want that mashed potatoes and don't even get me started about the sweet potatoes, right? Because you believe that when you sit down for that face, it's going to bring you joy. Some of you are looking forward to payday. Because you think that when you get that money in your hand, it is going to bring you joy. Some of you are deeply longing for the Falcons to just win a game, right? <laughs> because you believe, you believe that that experience will bring you joy. And here the psalmist longs, longs to get to the temple. Because he believes that God will bring him joy. My soul faints. My heart longs to get there because I know that when I get there, there will be joy in God. But I think Psalm 84 is more than just a description. I think it's actually an invitation to us. The psalmist is not saying, I want joy in God. He is also saying, and I want you to have joy in God too. I want you to find joy where I think there is joy to be found. And that brings me to my point this morning. It's simply this. We must believe that there is joy in God. We must begin to believe that there is joy to be found in God. You might hear this and say, I'm with you. That makes perfect sense. But if I'm really honest, the type of longing that the psalmist describes is pretty foreign to me. I mean, maybe there's been a couple of times in my life where I truly longed for God, but nothing really like consistent. You could not describe my life as a life of longing for the Lord. Is there any hope for me? I mean, can I have the type of longing that the psalmist has? Fortunately, I think the answer for all of us is yes. Because, remember, our longing is ultimately an expression of faith. That is, we long for things that we believe, that we believe will give us joy. Okay, now I'm from Chicago originally. 
And I love, I love, I love it. And even as I start to talk about this, I can start to think about a Chicago-style pizza from Aurelio's, okay? Like this particular pizza, we've compared them all. Okay, we shopped around. It's got the right combination of sauce and crust and toppings, and it all goes together. And even as I'm speaking, my mouth is watering just a bit. The reason that I can long for it is because I've experienced it, and I believe that that will satisfy me, right? You cannot, you cannot long for Chicago-style deep-dish pizza if you don't know what it is, right? Nor can you have a longing for God if you don't know who he is. The way that you will begin to develop a longing for God in your life is that you must begin to believe who he is. Or to put it a very simple way, if you want to long like the psalmist, you must believe like the psalmist. If you want to say, my soul faints for God, my soul longs for God. I want to be in his dwelling place. You need to begin to believe like he believes. So that raises the question, what does he believe about God? What does the psalmist believe about God that creates this sense of hunger, longing, desire in his heart? We don't have to guess. Because in the rest of the psalm, I think that's what he outlines for us. So I want to show you today... Three reasons, Lord willing, why you should have joy in God. Three things about God that should bring you joy. You ready? Okay, number one, the first reason that you should find joy in God is because the Lord welcomes. <laughs> After the psalmist declares his longing for God's dwelling place, he adds this. Look at verse three. Even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. The reason is straightforward. If even the common birds are welcomed into God's house, then surely he will welcome you. If you can go to the, this glorious grand temple and the birds can find a home there, surely, the psalmist reasons, there is a welcome for you. Virtually every religion in the world says something like this. Change your life. Perform this ritual. Clean up your act. Then after that, God will receive you. But the message of the Bible is exactly the opposite. In fact, the scripture says things like this. Come, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, the only prerequisite for receiving from God is empty hands. You don't have to have your stuff together to receive from God. All you have to do is know your stuff is not together. God is a welcoming God. And the reason that we can have joy in him is because he's saying, come to me. Don't bring money. I will give you bread and wine and milk without cost. During his earthly ministry, Jesus himself was known to welcome those that by societal standards had nothing to offer. 
This was so much the case that the religious leaders regularly criticized Jesus on this point. Luke chapter 15, verse number 2. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners. And he eats with them. The irony is that what the religious leaders meant as an insult, I believe Jesus took as a compliment. The Pharisees said, this man eats with sinners. And Jesus said, thank you very much. Listen, our Lord is a welcoming God. The friend of sinners wore his bad reputation like a badge of honor. He said, come to me. I am a friend of sinners. That's exactly right. You mean it as an insult. I mean it as the highest praise. I welcome those who don't have anything to offer me. Here's the implication. There is joy in God because no matter your past, no matter your background, no matter how bad you have been, no matter how much you have suffered, no matter what skeletons are in your closet, no matter how embarrassed you are, the Lord Jesus will welcome you. If you are a sinner, which all of us are, then you are in the category of person that Jesus receives. We got Christmas coming right around the corner here, right? And there's the old Christmas song, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know it? You know it? Let's see. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why, why? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Your part. I'm a bad choir leader. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So everybody, so be good. Okay, she wants to sing some more, yeah, yeah. The message of the song is clear, right? Watch what you do because Santa only gives presents to good boys and girls. I've got good news for you. God is the anti-Santa Claus. He doesn't just bless the deserving. Even when you aren't good, maybe especially when you're not good, the Lord has his arms open wide. He says, come to me. I welcome you. Even the swallow, even the sparrow can find a house in my house. Come on in. The water's fine. You are welcome. It doesn't matter what you've done or your background. Come to me. There's joy in that, folks. Isn't that better than better not pout? Because God loves us not because of us, but rather in spite of us. Man, there is great joy in that truth. I can see why the psalmist began to say, man, I long to get to the courts of that God. My soul faints to be in the presence of the one who welcomes me even in all my mess. Number two. The Lord not only welcomes, the Lord strengthens. Look at verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. 
The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before the God of Zion. As the Israelite pilgrims made their way to the temple, they would at times pass through dry places like the Valley of Baca. But even in the desert, the Lord would provide his people with the strength they needed. Look, though the Lord never promises that following him will be comfortable, he does promise that he will provide us with the strength that we need to endure. God says to his people, follow me. It won't always be easy. There will be times where you go through the valley of Baca. Through the dry and barren places. But even in the midst of that, I will provide for you pools and rain and spring to give you strength in the midst of the hardship and the journey. It's reminiscent of another psalm, isn't it? Maybe one of the most familiar psalms in all of the scripture. Psalm 23 where it says this in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here's what's interesting. Difficult times and difficult people are assumed They are assumed you will go through the valley of the shadow of death. You will have enemies. And they are not an indication that God does not care, but rather an opportunity for him to show his care to you. If you are in a valley right now, if you have enemies around you right now, that is not an indication that God does not care. It is an opportunity for God to show his care to you. God takes us through those times in order to provide us strength. The good shepherd does not eliminate the valleys or the enemies from the life of his sheep, but promises his presence and provision in the midst of them. Here's the thing. Some of you are in a valley right now, right? Your health is failing. Your finances are a wreck. That relationship is filled with tension. Your heart is broken and you don't know what you're going to do to get through tomorrow. I don't know the particulars of your situation, but here's what I do know based on the authority of God's word. God's strength is always, 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 always available to God's people. God does not say, I will not take you through the valley. But he does say this, I will be with you in the valley and I will strengthen you from strength to strength. You will have my help when you need it. Suffering, brother and sister, if that's you, if you're in a valley right now, or if you have enemies right now, I want you to hear the words of the Lord of the universe and let them wash over you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am the Lord, your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Philippians 4, 13. I can, because of these truths, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
Life is challenging sometimes. Life is difficult, but God will give strength to his people. And there is a beautiful story of that in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elijah has just announced to the wicked king Ahab that there will be no rain on the earth. When he makes that pronouncement, he immediately becomes a fugitive and begins to run away. And his journey takes him down to Zarephath, a town outside of the nation of Israel. He encounters an impoverished widow who has literally exhausted her resources. She is about to prepare her last meal for her son with the oil and flour that she has left. And Elijah makes a very, very unusual request. 1 Kings 17, verse 13. First make me a little cake of, cake of it and bring it to me. Man, if you are in that woman's shoes, what are you thinking? You crazy. I am about to die. I have my son that I am taking care of. And you want me to bake you a little cake. I know you're a prophet and all that, but come on, man. What are you talking about? But then Elijah says this after he makes the request. Or I'm sorry. He, he tells her that as long as the widow does this, he says this. The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And so what does the widow do? She makes the little cake. And what does God do? He just keeps that little jug full. She keeps the flour tin full. And day after day, they have enough to keep going because the Lord provides strength and strength. Listen, this is a beautiful story because it's where we all find ourselves, isn't it? Every single one of us need the Lord's strength win today. And we're going to need a little bit more of that strength tomorrow. And we're going to need a little bit more the next day. And we don't have very much. We don't have like a reserve of God's strength somewhere stored away in our pantry. And we're like, Lord, if I use up this strength, I won't have any for tomorrow. And you know what God says? He says, trust me because I will show up tomorrow again. Look, life is hard. But God is strong. Life is hard, church, but God is strong. And if you've trusted in Christ, I promise you, based on the authority of the word of God, the little strength you need to make it through, I guarantee that the oil won't be dry and the flour won't be empty. There is great joy to be found in a God who is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Listen, find joy in God because he won't let you down. He'll just keep giving you strength and you say, brother, I don't know if I can take another step. I know I've been there. But when you just stick that other foot out, guess what? He'll catch you. And when you do it the next day, he'll catch you again because that's the type of God he is. He walks with his people for the valley and he gives them strength to strength. And even though it looks like a desert place, he'll send the rain. There's joy in God because he's a God who strengthens. Number three, the Lord blesses. There's joy in God because he blesses. Look at verse 10. 
For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, even a single day in the lowest position with God is better than a thousand days in the highest position without him. Why? Why could that be true? Why would one single day in this lowly position be better than a thousand days without God? The, the simple fact of the matter is this, is because God is an extravagant blesser. That's why it's better. Because God can bless more in a day, a doorkeeper in a day, that it can bless those who are dwelling in the twins of the wicked for 10,000 days. Say, where do you get that? Look at the very next verse. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Get this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is both the sun, the one who gives life, and he's a shield, the one who protects us from harm. And he is irrevocably disposed to give his people so much that the text says that he denies those he loves no good thing. God is withholding from you, if you have trusted in Jesus, nothing good. God is not holding back. He is not stingy. He is not grudging. He is not mean. But he gives his people every good thing that they need. The implication of this is earth-shattering. For it means that everything that you receive from the hand of God is for your good. Some things that's really easy to see, right? Like the new job opportunity. The life-giving relationship. Your family, the unexpected bonus, your wonderful friendship, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. In all these things, we rejoice, and rightly so, because God is the giver of all those good things to us. And we say, we are a blessed people. God has done so much for us. There is so much good in my life. God has been so kind, and I think that's true of all of us, right? You just stop and pause for a minute. Hasn't God been kind to you? Aren't there innumerable blessings in your life because the Lord has been gracious and kind to you? Absolutely. But the text says that he withholds no good thing. And sometimes, friends, that means God blesses us in unexpected ways. Like the loss of a job opportunity. Or the ending of a relationship. Or the death of a family member. Or the unexpected bill or the betrayal of a friend, or the conviction of the Spirit. Though these gifts are often unappreciated in the moment, they come to us from the hand of the Heavenly Father, and therefore, they are for our good. Man, when, when I was in college, I played basketball, and at that stage of my life, basketball was extremely important to me, and I would say too important to me. And I remember in my junior year, just a few games into the season, uh, we were playing a game, it was up in Michigan, and I got the ball on the wing, and I drove the lane, and I got up in the air and jumped, and I came down funny on my ankle. And, and when I came down funny, I landed on it, and I heard, 
an audible That instant, I knew this is bad. And I kind of crumpled down to the ground. And that injury virtually ended my season. I think I got back for like maybe the last game or so, but I wasn't in good shape or anything. So my season was basically done. I remember at that point, you know, even like as soon as it happened, kind of be taking off the floor and thinking in my heart, Lord, what are you doing to me? Don't, don't you care? I mean, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to walk with you. And I love basketball. And you just rip this away from me. God, don't you love me? Don't you have my best interest at heart? I was very upset. But here's the thing. God wasn't just being mean. He wasn't just being arbitrary or random. God was interested in doing something in me. Through this injury, God began to show me that he was more valuable than basketball. He started to rip the idolatry out of my heart is what he started to do. In fact, he used this passage significantly in my life at that very time. And I remember saying it over and over again. For the Lord our God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. The Lord our God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. I was learning to believe what God said more than what I felt is what was going on in my heart. And listen to me. Listen very carefully to, the, to me. In the moment, I hated the injury. Now, I am thankful. I'm like, Lord, thank you for breaking my ankle. Because why? Because he was showing me something through that good thing. It didn't feel initially good, but no bad befalls me from the hand of my heavenly father. Though this injury was not initially pleasant, it was ultimately good. And can't you say that about a lot in your life too? Are you experiencing some things that are not initially pleasant? Right now, today. But if you believe what God's word says right here, you know, you know, you know that even that awful, painful, uncomfortable reality, God is ultimately doing something in you for your good. Doesn't mean it's fun doesn't mean it's enjoyable, but it does mean that it is from the hand of your heavenly father. Believer, God will never deny you anything that is for your ultimate good. Oh. Sometimes I introduce suffering into the life of my kids. Right? And if you're a parent, you do that too. You don't give them what they want. Sometimes you give them what they don't want. Is it because you're mean? No. It's because you love them and you're committed to them and you're saying, no good thing will I withhold from you. And if we sinful, broken parents act that way to our earthly sinful children, how much more does the perfect heavenly father in heaven say, you know what? I love you too much to withhold this good from you. And I know it's going to be uncomfortable. I know it's going to be painful, and I know you're not going to like it, and you know there's going to be sleepless nights, but I am giving it to you because no good thing do I withhold from my children. 
Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher and very suffering man, had all kinds of health, health issues, um, was attacked by all kinds of adversaries. He said it this way in the midst of his turmoil. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon, like the psalmist, realized that even the trials of the children of God come to them from the hand of our wise heavenly father. And whatever God is doling out to you today, whatever adversity it is in your life, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ, remember, it's not random. It's not accidental. The devil's not ultimately in charge of that. But it always comes through the hands of your loving heavenly father who says, I will withhold no good thing from you. As the old hymn writer said, God, God will take our deepest distress and sanctify it to us. That is, he'll make that distress precious to our heart. Stop and think about it, will you, for a moment? Think about the hardest times in your life. As you look back at those hard times, aren't you grateful that God took you through that? I mean, they were hard. But you see that God was doing something deep in you. I would not trade the broken ankle for the world. It's a precious gift of God to me. And I thank him for doing it. And I know that's true of you. Now, if we embrace that reality, the Lord blesses. There's joy. And we can say with the psalmist in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusted you. It is good to trust in you because I know that you have my best interest at heart. There is joy in God because all he does is bless. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much more? How much more? None. All God has for his people is blessing. That's it. Now, it may be severe at times. It may be uncomfortable at times. But God is bent on your best. He is committed to your good even more than you are committed to it. You may hear all this and say, wow. Man, that sounds amazing. And I'm sure there's some people that find joy in God. But not me. I mean, that's just not me. I don't long for God. In fact, if I'm really honest, I'm a little bit afraid of him. I don't trust that he has my best at heart. If you really knew what I was like, then, then you'd understand that. I mean, my heart is so bad, it's so wicked. I, I just don't know that joy is possible for me. Sure, for the psalmist. Sure, for some of these good church people that live here. Yeah, I'm sure joy is possible for some people, but not for me. So that raises the question in my mind. So is joy, is all this that the psalmist talks about possible for everyone? Like, can... Can just the average person in Gospel Hope Church have joy in God? Or is that reserved for people that write parts of the Bible? 
Is joy just a pipe dream or is it something attainable that we can have? I think the psalmist actually answers the question in the verses that we skipped. Did you catch it? Did you see we skipped a couple verses there? Were you paying attention? Look back at verse 8. Oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is about to get good. When the When the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem from all over in Israel, it was the king's job to kind of keep them safe. He was the anointed. And during this time, this was basically a prayer for the king. Like, Lord, thanks for the king. And keep him safe so that he can keep us safe. We're making this journey right now. We're leaving our homes and we need to make sure that we can get to Jerusalem. He's our shield. He protects us. Lord, would you look on him and would you, we just pray for our king. And certainly that's well, that was about, you know, David's line. His kings that succeeded him that were descendants of David. But I think the psalmist actually was writing about a, a future king. The divine author had another anointed in mind, namely the ultimate king, Jesus. If we see this text as pointing us to Christ, then the prayer of Psalm 84 becomes something like this. God, I want to dwell in your presence. I want to receive your welcome. I want to have strength from you. I want to be blessed from you. But God, I'm so unworthy. I don't deserve any of those things. I'm a wretch. I'm sinful. There is nothing in me that would make me deserve your favor. But God, I ask you right now to look on the face of your anointed who went to the cross in my place. God, I ask you to look on the face of your anointed who shielded me from the judgment that I deserve. God, I ask that you would look on the face of your anointed who removes every obstacle that separates from me from you. If you believe, if you believe that Jesus came and he was our shield, if you believe that Jesus is the anointed that this points to, then you can have joy in God. And if you cry out to him, Lord, don't look at my unworthiness. Look on the face of your anointed. You know what God will do? He will answer that prayer every single time. He will turn away from your sin and he will look on the suffering of his son who went to the cross as our perfect sinless substitute. The reason that God will accept you, the reason that God will welcome you, the reason that God will bless you is because he right now is looking on the face of his anointed who turned away his wrath from sinners like you and I. My prayer is that all of us would be able to say with the psalmist, oh Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Church, joy is possible for you. You hear me? Joy is possible for you.
not because your life is great. Not because things are getting better. I hope they are. Not because everything's going to be all right. Joy is possible for you because Christ is powerful. He died on the cross, not just to rescue you from sin. He did that, but he died on the cross to give you joy in God. We need to stop chasing these, what the Bible calls these broken cisterns that won't give us joy and turn to the fountain of living water, God himself and Jesus makes that path available. And our prayer this morning should simply be this, Lord, I don't have anything to offer, but you sent your son who lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And now he reigns and rules and intercedes for me. So God, I don't deserve joy, but you offer it through Christ. So look on the face of your anointed. Don't look at me. He is my joy. He is my hope. He is my rescue. So you might hear all that and say, man, well, what do I do? How do I begin to pursue joy? I, I see it's possible. How do I begin to pursue joy? Let me give you three real quick, simple things as we leave. Number one, gather. Well, what, what do I mean by that? The psalmist here, he expresses a desire to gather with God's people and worship God. Part of the reason we have church, brothers and sisters, is because we are forgetful people. And we need to just come together regularly and be reminded that there is joy in God. So don't make this gathering just like kind of a nice to have. It's critical for us to gather together and to remind one another who God is and that there is joy in him. And just kind of walk down the aisle and say, Brother David, good to see you this week. There's joy in God. You remember? You remember? You remember there's joy in God. And we're just going out, Julian. Remember, brother, there is joy in God. I need that. You need that. That's why we're here, to remind one another that there is joy in God. Second thing, grow. I don't think Sunday's enough. I'm, I'm more forgetful than just weekly. I don't know about you. So I need to be reminded that there is joy in God about every few minutes. <laughs> I would recommend, would you read your Bible? Just on your own. Just read your Bible to remind you that there is joy in God. There's about five weeks between now and Christmas, okay? And if you would read the Gospel of John, five chapters... Every week, if you don't have something you're already reading, would you just one day a week read, or I'm sorry, one chapter every day, read the Gospel of John to remind yourself that there is joy in God. Then one more, give. Oh, one of the greatest ways that we can remind ourselves that there is joy in God is by telling somebody else that there is joy in God. Amen? And are there people in our world that need to know that there is joy in God? Let's tell them. And let's urge them to, like us, look on the face of your anointed. There is hope because God sent his anointed into the world to rescue us from your sin so that you could have joy where there really is joy to be found. Look to Jesus. Let's go tell somebody about that. Let's give out that glorious message so that our hearts are stirred up to have joy in our Savior. We're going to pray this morning, and after that, we're going to take the Lord's table. I'll say a few words about that in just a moment, but I think it's a very appropriate way 
to remind ourselves that there is great joy to be found in the Lord. Can we pray together? Lord, would you work in us? Would you cause us to turn our eyes towards Jesus, your anointed? We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his work on our behalf. And I just ask this morning that you would do what you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.